No, it's usually Ed, Ed Tracy's watching it and being a Facebook stalker. No. So if you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter. Um, and let me just say, I want to say thank you to Pastor Mike for sharing the past two weeks. Um, the first week, Don and I had a great opportunity to go to Family Life's Weekend to Remember. Uh, we were challenged amidst the busyness of life to draw closer to God and closer to each other um, on a daily basis. And let me just challenge you as um, you have opportunity every year, we, Family Life does a Weekend to Remember uh, outing. And I don't care whether you've been married five days, five months, five years, or 105 years. It's a great opportunity to challenge your marriage to be strengthened and so forth. Um, they've been doing this for a lot of years and they've got a, a program that has just been refined and it's really a great opportunity um, to get away with your spouse and uh, it, I believe it will help all of you immensely if you do it. So let me just encourage you to take the time uh, when the opportunity comes around again next year to do it. I think you'll really be blessed by it. But I appreciate, as I say often, the, the folks that are in this congregation that can fill the pulpit. I know there are a lot of churches in our area that if pastor leaves, they're kind of you know, sunk. They don't really know who, who, who's going to do it. And we have several people in our congregation that can step forward, and I appreciate every one of you so much. So as we continue in our study of everyday church, we're going to focus on the subject of everyday mission. And we'll be looking at portions of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 uh, through chapter 3, verse 16 or so. So if you're not there, I invite you to turn there. Um, I want to start off by making some statements this morning as we've been concentrating this new year, really concentrating on getting out of our comfort zone, out of our areas of security, to really look for and ask God for areas of um, opportunity where we can share the gospel, where we can see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we've said many times, that as you do that, man, Satan is going to throw to the distractions your way. He's going to throw things in your path that you have to deal with so that you can't give the gospel. I mean, I, I feel like he's working overtime in this area, and he's going to continue to work overtime. Uh, I believe that when good things are happening, God or Satan doesn't want to see that go unchallenged. So it is a work. And um, let me just start by making some statements. Number one, the Church of Jesus Christ is the single most incredible institute known to man. That's a good spot for an amen. Thank you. It is the most important, the single most important institution that God gave man to carry out his work. Let me say that. He only gave us three institutions. He gives the institution of government, the institution of the church, and the institution of your home. Those are the three main institutions that God gave us. But when it comes to carrying out the work of Jesus Christ, it's the church. It's not a parachurch ministry, although there are a lot of good parachurch ministries. They come along and help the church. But it's the church of Jesus Christ that God chose to work through. Uh, it's the bride of Christ, the community of like-minded followers of Jesus Christ. When I say like-minded, it doesn't mean that we all are identical, perfectly in line 110% with each other. No, there are differences, there are disagreements, but we are a like-minded body in that we are coming together for a single purpose to carry out the work of Jesus Christ. Because we are the bride of Christ. And we strive to live in a community of love, grace, and kindness to each other. Amen? Uh, that ought to be the body of Christ, and so often it's not. I, I praise God because I do believe it's here. I believe that there is a spirit of unity. There is a spirit of love and encouragement and grace and kindness here. 
Um, we've seen that exemplified over and over again. But that's not the case everywhere. A lot of places there is fighting and bickering and so-and-so can't sit on this side of the auditorium because so-and-so sits there and they wrong their other friend who sits over here and is just fighting and fuming and that should not be. If anything, as you come out from a long work week, you ought to be able to come to church and be encouraged and blessed and see your friends and give a hug and say, hey, I, I thought about you this week. I'm praying for you. I'm encouraged by you. The church should not be a place that's fighting and bickering and griping. It ought to be a place where there's love and grace and kindness and a church that seeks to live out the mission and purposes of God the Father in everyday life. It ought to be that. It has not always been the case in my past. I've been part of churches where there's bickering and fighting and griping. But I praise God that we don't have that a lot of that here. Let me just say, don't let it come in either. Fight it. Stand against it. I remember in my first church, pastor came up, or one of the deacons came up to me and said, well, so-and-so is upset with you because you didn't blah, 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 blah. And I stopped him right there and I said, wait a minute. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to be a jerk. But why are you listening to grudge? Are you part of the offense? Well, no. Send them to me because I am, obviously. And you ought to do the same thing. If someone is mad at someone else, you shouldn't even hear the story. That's how you nip it in the church. Send it to the source of the problem. Send it to the horse's mouth where it came from. Because that's what fixes it. That's what's biblical. And I think most of you that know me know that we do that. Because it's the right thing to do. So in this message, I want to challenge how you think about church. Maybe challenge you to think about it a little bit differently. We talked about how the church has moved from being somewhat central in culture to now being in the margins of life as we know it. Just by way of example, we talked about Little House on the Prairie. Where did all the town meetings take place? Church. Every time somebody came in to threaten the town in some way, there was a meeting at the church. I mean, everything wrapped around the church in Walnut Grove and what Reverend Alden had to say. I mean, he was all-knowing, right? He was the man. That's not the culture today that we live in. They might talk to a pastor, they might talk to a Christian, but really it's not the foremost place to go. We find self-help books, we find psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, anybody that will give me an ear. So the church has moved to the margins to some extent. And the author of, every, the, of this book, Everyday Church, along with myself, would like to challenge us to think a little bit differently about church. To think about the true mission of the church. You know, growing up in church, and I know looking out here, a lot of you grew up in church. I, I, I was a bus kid. I was a little four or five-year-old that, you know, got on the bus every Sunday morning to ride the bus to church. I grew up going to church. But growing up in church, we tend to think of the church as a building or even a place. Let me give you an example. Where do you go to church? Well, I go to church at Harvest Bible. Really? Uh, do you attend church? Because a church is a place or a building in our way of thinking within our culture, right? Our church is an old building that looks like it was built in the dark ages. And we refer to that as the church. Or our church is big and beautiful and, and, and everything's brand new, it's gorgeous. And we refer to that as the church. 
or our church runs 500 people. And we refer to those 500 people as the church. Why are the terms that we misconstrue important to us? If we lose our definition of what the church is, we will more than likely lose, uh, I guess, an understanding of what the church is supposed to do. Because the church is not a building, right? We know that factually, right? The church is not a building. It's not a place. It's not an old, dilapidated building built in the Dark Ages or a brand new one that was erected last year. It's not a, a group that's 500 people over here. It's not a lodge. It's not a country club. It's not a membership to an exclusive place that we want to feel a part of. The church is you and I that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen? You're the church. I'm the church. So it's not an idea. Oftentimes I'll, I'll say to people, where do, where do you attend church? Where does your church attend? Where's the place at? Where's the? This is just a facility. This is not the church. You're the church. This is just a building, right? So we need to understand that if we understand what the church is and what the function of the church is, I think we'll be more on target of what we're supposed to do and to be. So look with me, if you would, First Peter chapter two. We're going to look at one dimension of everyday mission. From First Peter chapter two, and verse verses uh, nine and following. And let me just say this: as we look at this passage, every one of these phrases that come from verses nine and ten are also coming from the Old Testament. Um, for example, in First Peter chapter two, verse nine says, "But you are a chosen race, a chosen peace people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You, are not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he says, first of all, that you are a what? You're a chosen people. You're a chosen race. It's no accident, I don't believe, that God has you here today. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says that God places each one in the body as he sees fit. And if you're here, I don't believe that's by accident. I believe that God has a plan for you. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says, For we are his workmanship, created unto good works. And God has you in a body to carry out his work in our everyday life. It's not about whether the church or not has this program or that course or this opportunity, it's whether or not we are obedient in carrying out what God has asked us to do and to be. So he says, first of all, that you're a chosen people, a chosen race. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, I'm almost there, Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 20, he says this, Uh, wild animals, jagged ostrich, because uh, that's not the one I want. Oh, yeah, here it is. R to give drink to my chosen people. God has a chosen people. And we get to be a part of that as his children in, in, in Christ. We get to be a chosen people. Peculiar people. Different kind of people who are set apart for a different purpose. 
And then he says, a royal priesthood, as he talks about in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. A royal priesthood. Not just a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Man, you got royalty in you as, as a child of God. Amen? God, has, God thinks you're valuable. You have worth. A holy nation. Once again, Exodus chapter 19. A holy nation. What does the word holy mean? Set apart for a purpose. Righteousness intertwined with that and how you live. A people for his possession. We're his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 talks about that once again. Bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We're his possession. But why does he do all this? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you. You see, we're not here just to live life. You know, you get up in the morning, get dressed, and go about and do whatever it is that you do every day. He's called us to bring him praise, to proclaim his praises. Or the one who called you. So, well, one more thing, and then I'll come back to that. It says, you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He changed us, changes everything. and gives us purpose and life and existence. So think about this just for a moment. What, are, what does it mean to praise? It means to boast in. To boast. Now, how many of you have a favorite athletic team? Some of you are lying. You're not putting your hand up. You know you have them. Okay, let me rephrase it. How many of you have several, multiple favorite teams? There we go. Now we get the rest of you. So for some of you, it's Dallas, and that's okay. Some of us, it's the Vikings. It's a little bit better. Um, no. We have these teams. What happens when our team does well? We begin to boast in them. I mean, it might be the only team or game they won this week or this season, but they won this one, and I'm going to talk about it. Right? See, when you have a favorite team, or let's put it this way, a favorite hobby, and man, is there a craze with oils right now. Good Lord. I was telling somebody the other day, they said, you want these oils? And I said, I want the one that Jesus used. And I want the diffuser that he used too. Oils. What's your hobby? But when you have an interest in something, and when something is important to you, what do you do? You boast about it. You talk about it. It comes up in every conversation one way or another because it's important to you. And when it comes to praising God, does it come up in the conversations? Does, does it become a talking point in, with the people that we're spending time with? Because according to this verse, he says, so that you may proclaim. Why did he get, choose you? Why did he make you a royal priesthood? Why did he have you become part of a holy nation? <clears throat> so that we would proclaim the praises of him who called us. Let me ask this question. I want you to be honest. Don't raise a hand. Don't talk out loud. But I want you to be honest in your mind this morning. When's the last time you proclaimed the praises of God to someone? Man, isn't God good? Look what God has done for us this week. It's really cool as a dad. It really is. And you parents know this. When some of your kids come to you and say, well, I, 
you know, I just wanted to see what God was going to do, and God did it. And God came through and provided. And you start talking about it because God did it. That is cool. But how many times in everyday living? What might be the impact of the conversations that we have in the sphere of influences that God gives us if we would just simply talk about the praises of who God is. Sometimes we're so afraid of what people who we may never see again think. We're so worried about our perception in front of other people that we won't say anything. We need to change that. So how do we live out our mission? Let me give you one way from our text here, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. First of all, he says verse 11. He reminds us of something that's very, very important to consider in our lives. He says, dear friends, I urge you as who? Strangers, exiles, pilgrims. Some of your translations may say aliens, sojourners. What's he saying here? Your life here is what? Temporary. So we need that reminder to, to understand that the world that we are living in, that we are building up our possessions in, accumulating the materialistic wealth of this world in, is all temporary. So that cannot be our focus completely. So he says, I'm urging you as strangers and pilgrims and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, to abstain from these uh, that wage war against the soul, and here's how we can have an impact in the world that we live. Verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles are the ones who are living out a holy, righteous life before God, right? No. They were the ones who were not doing that. <coughs> and so he reminds them, don't live like them. Don't be like them. You need to live a life that's different from how they're living it. Let me, put it, let me kind of give you a, a Kentuck paraphrase. Don't live your life like the world around you is living their life. Because they're not saved. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're going to naturally do things differently, live differently. And that's who they are. Don't let that shock you. Don't let that amaze you. Because they don't know Jesus. Live differently than they do. Because if there's no difference in the way you live versus the way they live, why should they want what you got? Does that make sense? So what's he saying here? Conduct yourselves honorably among them, so that when they slander you as an evildoer, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So what's he saying here? Your testimony matters. Your reputation matters. Your influence and in how you live life matters to those around you who do not know Jesus Christ. It matters because they are watching. Whether you think so or not, they are watching. In Matthew chapter 5, 
Keep your finger in, in 1 Peter. There's another familiar passage. You know this passage. Matthew chapter 5, just for a moment. This is familiar. You all know this. Matthew 5, verse 14. It says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What's he saying here? Be a light in the dark world that we live in. Period. And when you do that, it will speak volumes. I've got a sign in my office and there's been discrepancy of who actually came up with the quote. Uh, some have given it to Sir Francis Assisi. Others have given it to other people. But whoever wrote it, whoever said it, don't really matter. But here's what it says. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Do you get it? Live your life in such a way where people will see that you are different. That you are different. Because you know Jesus Christ. And what will happen in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? But in your heart regard Christ, the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. See, when you live a life that is righteous and holy before God, and you respond rightly to the circumstances around you, you just have to expect that people are going to treat you wrong. Is that, is that right? I mean, just assume it. Because they're not Christ followers. People are going to sometimes treat you wrong. How do you respond to that? I, I know. I'm, I'm, there's the pot calling the kettle black. I get frustrated sometimes. Do you? I need to guard that. I can't control what happens in my life. But I have to control how I respond to those things. It may speak volumes to somebody who may not know Jesus Christ. So how do we live out our mission? Live your life in a way that would bring glory to God through your actions and reactions to the circumstances of life. Be salt and light in the world that we live in. Be ready to give an answer that when you respond differently than what someone else would, how, how someone else would respond, that they're, hey, how come, how come you're not upset? Or how come you didn't respond the way everyone else did? Or how come you didn't jump on the bandwagon when the, when the supervisor said X, Y, Z? How come you didn't do... There's the open door. And let me just say this in the workplace, and I've said this many times, God has given you a job, those of you that work, a job for two reasons. Number one, to provide for your family. Because God's word is very clear that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And number two, it's your mission field. It's your mission field. And when you gripe and complain at the upper management, guess what everyone around you does? And when they're doing it and you join in, guess what? There's no difference between you and them. But here's the deal. You can't gripe about the, the authority that God places in your life in front of everybody that's there and then say, oh, by the way, would you like to come to church Sunday? They're incompatible. We have to guard how we view the authority God places in our lives. And that is hard. Because we all know that the supervisors and the authorities 
and the management don't get it sometimes, do they? But they got the degree and they got the position, therefore they have the authority. But we have to guard how we respond to those circumstances. Let me say what this does not mean. You say, Pastor, isn't that just a social gospel? I mean, just, uh, you know, just live it out, don't have to say anything. No, that's not that. What does this not mean? It's not adding new services, new courses, new programs, new activities in and of themselves. Because we're not just catering to the whims of the world around us. We're not. It's not a matter of doing more good works just so that we may have an opportunity to open our mouth at some point. It's not just doing good works. It's not catering to the world around us. Mission takes place as we live out our faith in the workplace as we live it out in the neighborhood, as we live it out in our home, as we live it out in the context of everyday life. That's exactly what he's saying here in 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, look at verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. He said, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to the praise of those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So what's he saying here? You need to submit to the authority. And by doing that, you will point people to Jesus Christ. That's hard to do. You know why it's so hard? Because that means I have to submit to somebody. And guys, especially, who of us likes to submit to anybody? Isn't that our nature? To be in charge? To be the boss? To have an opinion that I'm not willing to relinquish? Because I know better? Because I think I know what we should do? That's my nature. Maybe it's not you, but it's mine. I think most of us as men want to be the leader. But he says... To submit to every human authority because of the Lord. He's established it. And once again, by doing that, we tell the world around us that needs Jesus that there's something different about us. And then we can be ready to give an answer of the hope that has within, is within us. Let me give you a little exercise that he talks about here on page 90 in our book that I'm kind of looking through. In the world that we live in, the evangelism that we seek to do in our everyday mission and so forth. I love this first paragraph. I want to read two paragraphs. It says, when we think of evangelism, we should not first think of guest services, evangelistic courses, street preaching, or door knocking. He said, not first. We should think of Gary at a meeting of the Residents Association. We should think of Hannah in her office. We should think of Sharon serving a meal with her husband. What's he talking about? Living out Jesus Christ in everyday life. Being an example of Jesus to those who may not walk through the door of a church. I mean, all these things are good, but they first need to be lived out in our life. So here's what he said. Here's an exercise to help identify opportunities for everyday mission. Think of all the activities, however mundane that you may think they are, that make up your life. Several areas here. Number one, your daily routine. That means from traveling to work, eating meals, doing chores, walking the dog, playing with the children. Think of your daily routine. Number two, your weekly routine. 
grocery shopping, watching your favorite television programs, exercising, so forth, your weekly routine. Number three, your monthly routine. You're gardening, you're getting a haircut, going to the movies. You should have a long list of activities. For each one, ask whether you could add these three things. Number one, in your daily routine, your weekly routine, your monthly routine, could you add, first of all, a community component by involving another member of your Christian community. Is there something that you're doing that you could invite somebody to do it with you? You know what, that's a pain because you've got to plan. You can't go by the seat of your pants on this one. You've got to plan. Number two, is there a missional component? Is there something that you're doing in your daily routine, your weekly routine, or your monthly routine whereby you could have a missional component by involving an unbeliever. Something that you can do that you can invite somebody to do it with you. Number three, is there in your daily routine, your weekly routine, your monthly routine, a gospel component where you identify opportunities to talk about Jesus to those around you? You see, most of us, let's be honest here just for a minute, most of us have a to-do list. Some of them are on that daily routine. You're going to get up every morning. You're going to make the bed. You're going to wash the dishes from the breakfast. You're going to throw a load of clothes in the laundry, whatever. You have your daily routines. Some of you have your weekly routines. You're going to go every Monday to this. You're going to go every Wednesday afternoon to this. You're going to go every Friday morning to that. You have it. And you have your monthly routines. It's just easier to do it by yourself, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's just easier. But to live on mission for Jesus Christ means that we're starting to look beyond what I want to do and what I have to get done to include it to bring in those around us in the sphere of influence that God has given to us. You've got to take those opportunities. So is there an opportunity for a, you know, to bring somebody in with you with what you're doing and how you're doing it so that you could live out Jesus Christ? But we can and ought to be missional. Let me give you a few ideas on how we can be missional every day. How about this first one? Eat with non-believers. So what are you talking about? Are there people in your neighborhood? Are there people in your workspace? Are there people in your family that don't know Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Have you ever thought about taking them out to lunch? I do that about every two weeks. There's a couple of people in, in town here that are unchurched. I'll take them to lunch. In fact, later on this week, I've got another meeting with an unsaved man. He said, uh, yesterday, as I, was, I ran into him yesterday, he goes, let's do lunch later this week. I want to do lunch with one more person. Like, But that's life on mission. Building opportunity, building relationships so that we can invite them to the most important relationship. Right? Know what we say? Build relationships to invite them to the most important relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's another one. And this is not all my ideas, by the way. They come from the book. Walk rather than drive. Walk. I do that anyway because i got the biggest truck on the planet and I park in the way farthest out just so I can get out when I leave. It's not about the scratches or the dents. It's about getting out when you, when you need to leave. So you park out there. But walking, you ever realize that walking creates more opportunities for conversations than driving? You ever notice that? 
Because when you walk, you run into people who are walking. How about this one? Be a regular. So what are you talking about? Those of you that like to go out to eat, be a regular. Because you start building relationships with that one waiter, that one waitress. Be a regular. Say, so, well, that's too much money. Well, then find someplace else to be a regular. I get it. But being a regular builds relationships. Or how about this one? Have hobbies with non-believers. You have hobbies where there are unbelievers there? They need to see how you live, how you think, how you talk, how you respond. Talk with those around you, where, who are, wherever or whoever they may be. My kids always laugh at me. Andrea laughs at me. She's not in there. Oh, yes, she is. She laughs at me. She goes, Dad, do you know that guy? Nope. <laughs> I'm always talking to somebody in line somewhere. I mean, right? I mean, they're looking at you. You're looking at them. You might as well say something. I mean, got the gift of gab. You, you, you get on it, right? Never met a stranger. Use it. Volunteer. When's the last time you volunteered to something that you weren't a part of? Volunteer. Participate in organizational or city events. One more. Serve your neighbors. That's living out Jesus Christ in your everyday living. You know, here at Harvest, we have a mission statement. It's on our coffee mug. It's on various things. Love God, serve people, grow together. If we can fall underneath those things of loving God, and as we love God more, we'll begin to serve others. And as we serve people, we'll begin to grow spiritually, physically. Say, well, I'm just one. I'm just, a, I'm, I'm just me, and I'm not very talented. I'm not very this. I'm not very that. Listen, we all have a million excuses we could use. I'm not very outgoing. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm quiet. I'm reserved. I'm this. I'm that. We, and we, truth. We all have all kinds of excuses we could use. And rational, justifiable reasons. I'm not saying they're not. But I find it interesting that God's willing to use us if we're willing to let Him. See, it's never been about our talents, our abilities, our skills, or the lack thereof. It's about letting God speak through us. Um, Acts chapter 17, verse 6 is a verse I'm going to close with this morning. So here they are in Thessalonica. In fact, let me just read verses 1 through whatever. It says, After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there, were a, there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving uh, that, was, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. And this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Think about this just for a moment. Here's a small household. The household of Jason. And they were accused of what? Turning the world upside down for Jesus. I always thought that was a cool phrase. They turned the world upside down. What you have is this small family and a handful of people that he welcomed into it. There's riots going on because there are always going to be those that don't like what you're doing, what you stand for. But he gets accused of turning the world upside down and welcoming other believers into this family. We're a family. I don't know if you get that or not, but we as a church are a family. I've said it many times. I'm very close to this family. Many of you are closer to my kids than their blood relatives. I'm closer to many of you than I am my own family because of the distance and the miles. It's a family. But I believe that this family can turn the world upside down. I believe that. If all of us would do our little part of living out our faith every day. Begging God for courage, for boldness. Asking God for discernment of knowing what to say, when to say it. Praying for those opportunities. Praying for the loss that we've said many times. We've talked about that many times. Praying for the lost. Asking God for opportunities. Seeking His face. Seeing what He will do if we trust Him to do it. But it starts with you and I saying, God, I'll submit to whatever you have. I'll be the picture of Jesus in my everyday living. It's not about getting out of your neighbors here to this building. I, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. I think you've got to meet them where they're at outside these walls. You have to live it out. Amen? Let's pray. Generally, Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to, Lord, really just concentrate on what you have for us from this book of 1 Peter and to Lord be challenged but not only challenged, changed because of what you're doing and I ask God that you would in some way impress upon our hearts the need to be missional in our daily living to eat with non-believers to walk rather than drive to be a regular, to have hobbies with unbelievers, to, Lord, just live it out in the world that we live in. But, Lord, I know for many that requires them getting outside the walls of their house, the comfort zone, the area of security, to be involved in a community, to visit a regular restaurant, to visit a cafe, to go to a coffee shop, to... Help out with the little league. Lord, it doesn't matter. Wherever the sphere of influence that you give to us, might we find opportunities to live out our faith. So God, would you speak to our hearts this morning as we talk about living with an everyday mission of pointing people to you. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just for a moment this morning, say, Pastor, God's challenged my heart.